If you have your Bibles, please join me in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 today. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So, where we've been in this series, we started out looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 6, when he told us, to, the writer told the Hebrews that were reading this, to go beyond the basic ABCs of the faith and to move on to maturity. And that word maturity meant perfection. So, he's telling them the bar should be set high as far as your Christian walk, and don't remain on repenting for sins that you've already repented of and trusting in Christ. Don't go back and rebuild that. One of the big reasons, I think, is because we're supposed to go on to maturity. We're supposed to aim high. The Air Force used to have a saying, aim high. Uh, we had one in the Army, but it was nothing connected to that. But um, So we looked at that. We looked at entering God's rest, and the issue there in uh, Hebrews 4, 11 to 13, was, was basically the Jews believed that they had the law and they lived by the law and there was all this work done. And he's saying, no, you enter God's rest. It's in Christ and rest assured. Last week, we looked at God spoke both in the Old Testament and in today uh, speaks through his son, Jesus Christ. So as we look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, which is where we're at today, the author of Hebrews, and it is up to speculation who wrote it, we do know it was canonized, and so it was validated, but he gives, the writer in Hebrews gives five warnings throughout the book. And the first warning is what we're looking at today. The second warning is in chapters 3 and 4, the uh, third warning is in chapter 5, 11 through 6, 20. The f a fourth warning is in chapter 10, 19 to 39. And the fifth warning is in chapter 12. Now, we got to keep a little context here. This is not written to Gentiles, not to us. Very clearly, the Old Testament is prevalent in this book, and there's all references to Melchizedek. There's, there's reference to the high priest. So this is particularly written to Jews or to Hebrews who have, at some have trusted in Christ and some have not. And I think that has to regulate our interpretation here. We do know as believers that we are under grace, that Christ paid for our sins in full once and done. It is finished. But to the Hebrews, think of it this way. There's, there's some Hebrews that are, that are on the fence. There's Jews that are on the fence. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to nudge them over to the other side of the fence. Now, if we look at, this is a pretty easy outline, although this is quite a challenging text, and a lot of these are in Hebrews. But today I want to focus on the danger of drifting the danger of drifting. And so the writer of Hebrews, first of all, says, pay close attention. Now notice what he writes in verse 1. 
Therefore, we must pay closer attention. And in the Greek language, that's pay, pay attention. Much is, was added for translation. Uh, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. So whenever you see therefore in Scripture, it generally points back to something that happened before. So when he writes, therefore, based on what was just said in chapter 1, this is what you do. Now, if we look at this, quite ironically, 1.5, you are my son, today I have begotten you, that actually comes out in Psalm 2.7. Psalm 2.7. You can go back, it's a direct translation from Psalm 2.7. The second thing he says, I will be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. That is from 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 7.14. So again, the writer of Hebrews is very aware of the Old Testament and brings these phrases over to make a specific point about Jesus Christ and, of course, the message of salvation. Number three, let all God's angels worship him. That's from Psalm 97.7. Let all God's angels worship him. And again, the reference here is to Jesus Christ. So in chapter 1, he is trying to tell the audience who is holding to the Mosaic law and who is uh, focused on the angels, which we'll get into that in a few minutes. He's trying to say Christ is better than that. Christ is higher than that. And so then he goes in 1.7 of the angels, he says, he makes the angels his wind and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, what does that mean? Of course, that's from Psalm 104. Um, we do know from the Old Testament that angels would sometimes change their appearance. And so sometimes they would be, at least to the author, uh, wind. And sometimes it would be a flame of fire. And so these angels would change their appearance in order to bring about a message of God. And the last one, you can just read uh, Psalm 45, 6, and 7, uh, which is in verses 8 and 9. And if we would look at verses 8 and 9, but he says of the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your scepter of righteousness, uprightness, is the scepter for, of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So when he says, therefore, he's talking about chapter 1 and pulling it over to say, look, I want you to listen. Therefore, you must pay close attention to what you have heard. Prosecco, that is the Greek word for pay attention, to be in a constant state of readiness to learn of any future danger. It's not just learning about the danger or error and respond appropriately to pay attention, to keep on a lookout for, to be alert, to be in one's guard against. But it's not just to 
It's not just to listen and to pay attention. It is also to take appropriate action. Because in chapter 3, he's going to say, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. So we get this idea here is that the author of Hebrews is talking to those who have still not crossed over and trusted Jesus Christ. Again, the author is trying to move them to accept Christ. Some beautiful language here. Very fascinating language as we go through. But the reason that they are to pay attention is because there is danger coming. There is danger coming. We all know that the Jews are God's chosen people. And in fact, I've, I've said this many times from the pulpit, we can never abandon Israel because they are God's people. We should always try to support and defend Israel. And we should also want the Israelites, those who have, are, are not Messianic Jews. I've got a good friend, Kirk Glebe. He's a Messianic Jew. Everything he still does his Saturday uh, worship, and he takes all of the elements and he transfers them to Christ. But there's a lot of Jews who have not trusted in Christ. And so, pay close attention, because there's a danger coming. And that danger is to die without Christ. I think of danger. That looks pretty scary. And I... I I think we're getting towards the end of tornado season, but it's very dangerous. This is an aftermath of one tornado. It's quite destructive, quite dangerous. So when you see a tornado, and every Tuesday, I know all of you hear it. I'm usually in my office, and I hear the boop, and it's letting, it's practicing in case there's a tornado that comes, and technically you're supposed to be uh, hiding, going into a place that's safe. You would not go outside when a tornado, un unless you're one of those storm chasers, which is crazy, uh, go outside and say, hey, look, look at that big funnel coming right towards me. You wouldn't do that. You would find a place of safety. And the author is saying, listen, you got to pay close attention to this because this is important, not just for us, but particularly for them. And then he follows that up with a warning. Now, this is very interesting. This paro, paro, very interesting. The warning is this, lest we drift away. So the first question, um, the first question that we need to answer is, does the author mean, does the author mean that these, these people are right here, they've been saved, but now they're questioning that salvation and they move back. No. No, these people are right on the precipice. They've heard the gospel message. This is relevant for us today. It's people who have heard the gospel message, but then slowly drift away from the gospel message. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be any evil in you, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. In other words, in Hebrews 3.12, he's warning them again 
of the danger of being right. There used to be a blue line here. I don't know where I cross over and I get out of the screen, but it's just about right, right, Brian? It's about right. So there's, there's a line there. He's saying, look, I want you to get over that line. The real danger is to recede from that line and fall back into error and miss Jesus Christ. The Jews are God's people, but some have rejected a good chunk of them. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 makes it clear that this is not a reference to uh, drift, drifting away, meaning I trusted in Christ, now I'm going to drift away. Uh, Hebrews 6, 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, listen to this, these are Jews who have trusted in Christ, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of, of the age to come, and then having fallen away. Let me, let me stop there. So what the author there is saying in chapter 6 is that it is impossible if somebody who has truly trusted in Christ, who has the Holy Spirit, should they be able to fall away and lose that salvation? This is what the author says. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So the writer of Hebrews is actually confirming once saved, always saved. When you cross that line, you may not live like it, you may not look like it, but if you've truly trusted in Christ, you can never lose that salvation. It's secure. But the author also told us last week, or the week before, that you need to shoot for perfection. Leave that basic understanding, and he says it just before the verse I just read you, the verses that you aim for perfection. So it's not like, okay, I trust Christ and then I live like I want to live. That's not what the author's saying. What the author is saying here is, look, you guys are right here. You're right at the line and he's trying to move them over to cross that line. Now this is interesting. There are certain times a word only appears once. And we have words here that only appear once in the entire Bible. When I see a word like that, <laughs> I start digging to find out what the author is trying to say. Now, this is the word. Paro, paro, we drift away. Only used here. To drift away from belief. Literal translation. But it's not as if they had the belief. These are people who are so close to receiving Christ. They're right on the edge. But they don't trust in Christ. They move away from the possibility of belief. That's, that's, it's, it's like you've, you've got a boat and you're right there. You're ready to dock and then all of a sudden you drift out away from safety. John MacArthur hits this really well, and I like what he said here. John MacArthur said this, the picture is not of an ignorant sailor or a rebellious sailor, but of a careless sailor. 
We had better take all the more heed, therefore, lest unintentionally and unexpectedly we one day find ourselves, I love this, having forever drifted past the harbor of salvation. You catch that? These are people that are close. They've heard the gospel. They know the gospel intellectually. They've heard it. They've reasoned through. But like a boat, they are now drifting past the harbor of salvation. Hebrews 3.15 Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Again, I've talked to people who I shared the gospel with and they were just right there. And they said, I don't want to make a decision right now. Let me think about it. And then slowly they start drifting. Maybe never to get back to that spot again. And it should pain our hearts when somebody is that close to receiving Christ and then say, would you like to trust in Jesus? And then to go, let me think about it. Let me reason through some things. And they start drifting further and further. And before you know it, they may never see the harbor again. And that's exactly what Satan wants. And so the author says, look, you guys better take this stuff seriously. You better listen to what I'm saying. You may only get one shot at this. You don't know at what point. You may not make it to tomorrow. And the author is saying, don't get to the point where you start drifting. That's the real danger. That's the warning. Have you ever witnessed to somebody and they've said, I mean, I can think of three or four incidents in my ministry where, where the person was just right there and they couldn't get across. And I've often wondered what happened to those people. Let me ask you a question. Don't raise your hand. I don't want anybody to know this. But have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Today may be your day if you have not. And I, I guarantee you that there will be people in this church that will be joyful if you make that decision to trust in Christ. So here we have the author saying, look, I, I want you to pay attention to this. And you need to listen very carefully because there is the possibility that you can get right on the precipice of salvation and then drift away from that. The second thing is what he wants them to pay attention to is the gospel message. For since the message declared by angels was proved reliable, bebios, I love that word, bebios. <laughs> And that word means known to be true. Known to be true. Thomas Lay in his commentary wrote this. Jewish understanding associated the giving of a law 
with the work of angels, and that's in Galatians 3.19. Our writer's word is that the Old Testament law, despite its less than impressive origins through angels, was still binding. So when we look at the Old Testament and we look at how the law was given, we, go, we have to go all the way back to Mount Sinai. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Mount Sinai? It's, that's, that's awesome. That's the place where God gave the commandments. And so in Galatians 3.19, we read this, why the law? Paul is arguing in Galatians for faith and faith alone in Christ. You cannot have law and Christ. Why? Because Christ is, in Galatians, the telos, the end of the law for those who believe. In other words, Christ fulfilled every letter of the law. Therefore, when we trust in Christ, we also, in Christ, have fulfilled the law because it was done in Christ. Now, he says here, it was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put into place through angels. So in some sense, the Old Testament law was uh, given by Moses through angelic messengers, which we read in chapter 1. Sometimes they come in wind, sometimes they come in fire, sometimes they come as different means or different uh, uh, appearances. But this was put through... by the angels. It came from God, obviously, because it was holy. The real danger, when we talk about the law, the real danger, and Paul says in Galatians, the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. So when the Jews look at the law, they go, well, I can't possibly obey all these. The, Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, says, look, you can't. It, it, the law shows you that you need Christ. None of us are perfect. None of us. And therefore, we would fail at a lot. Over 713 laws, 714 laws, you can't possibly live by. And sometimes you can't even live by the own laws that you make in your own life. You fall short of that. So here, he's saying, look, <laughs> you can't live by that and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution. Pararabos, that word transgression means to break the law. The Jews knew this as they were reading this. They knew the author was saying, look, you're going to break the law. Uh, Parakeo is the word for disobedience, that means refuse to believe. So if you're a Jewish person, and I, I love Jewish people, I love the people of God, uh, there's a lot of Jews that have not trusted in Christ and will, they're still waiting for the Messiah. And that's horrible because they are God's people. And yet God's people have rejected Christ, which I think is actually... Well, I guess it's all the same, but it just seems more severe. If I was a Jew and didn't receive Christ, I got right to the edge, and then as the writer says, I, I drift away from that and not trust in him. To me, it seems worse, but lostness is lostness no matter what it is. But uh, on Wednesday nights, 
if you want a little history lesson, we're, we're, we're watching uh, Ray Vanderland. I know a lot of us, we really like Ray Vanderland, don't we? Yeah. He's doing a Wednesday night teaching on kings and prophets, and we're on number four. I think it's four coming up. It's right four. Four of ten, I think. Do you know how many kings were absolutely godless? Oh, they, they paid. They got paid for it. The nation of Israel seemed like it goes like this. We'll worship Yahweh, Yodehaveh in Hebrew. Oh, but now we're in with Baal. Oh, we're going to worship God because he did this great thing. Oh, then we're going to drift. Then we're going to go again and because God's so great. And it's like up and down, up and down, up and down. And you, then you add to the mix kings who were supposed to represent God and lead the people marrying people they shouldn't be marrying and mixing cultures. And no wonder God goes, okay, you didn't learn it this time. Now I'm sending the Assyrians. And they were brutal. I'm going to put you into captivity so you learn your lesson. But all of this, all of this reminds us that you cannot live the law perfectly and therefore you need Christ. I bet you within this room, and I'm not going to make you raise your hand, I bet you within this room, every one of us, including myself, have broken the top 10 at least once. Not to mention the other 700 and so. And th this is where it gets, this is where it gets, that's why the author, would, we just talked about drifting away. You get right to the point of salvation, then you go, you know what, I'll think about it. L listening to Ray Vanderland, the first two were br pretty brutal, right? The, the first two were brutal, and he's pointing out the fact that these kings were corrupt. And every time the king was corrupt, guess who paid for it? The people. He says here, retribution is the word for receive a reward, either negative or positive. <laughs> I want to be on the positive side. I, I know because that I've trusted in Christ as my Lord and Savior, my sins are gone. Now, I still sin in the flesh. I fight the flesh. You guys and gals, you fight the flesh. But here's the deal. Positionally, you have the righteousness of Christ inside you. It is not what you do or what I do that keeps me saved. It's by what Christ did that keeps me saved. And that's a big difference. And I meet people, they, they're scared. They're scared to death even after trusting in Christ. And I go, you don't need to be scared. You need to live for him. And maybe if you're scared, maybe there's something in your life you need to get out of there. But you don't need to be scared. When you've trusted in Jesus Christ and it was real, it's done. It's done. It is finished. You are saved. <laughs> 
And I, I guess I could go back and read that verse. For it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift partaken of age to come if they should fall away to renew them again to repentance because what you have to do at that point if you can lose your salvation is put Christ back up on the cross and crucify him all over again. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 6 says you can't do that because then you're putting Christ to a public open shame. When Christ was on the cross, he said, it is finished. And he died. What did he mean it was finished? Everything was paid for. Everything was paid for. And therefore, when you trust in Christ, you're paid for. And Paul writes in, in Corinthians, you are paid for by his blood. Right? But you're secure. Because God always and still required a blood sacrifice. And you know what Christ became on the cross? He became a blood sacrifice paying for your sin and mine. I've got another class where I talk about how the Old Testament law, all the regulations come into the New Testament law, but in a way of internal, not external. Maybe I'll do that one of these days. Philip Hackney Oh, wait a minute. I want to get to this first. So in verse 3, he writes this. Having said all that now, pay attention. There's a storm coming. Don't drift away from the point of salvation. Watch what the writer writes here. I love this. He's, he's, he's really masterful. He's setting up this big problem. Now watch, now watch what he says. How shall we, Jews, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation you get that I don't think these people that he's talking to right here have truly trusted in Christ they're right there at the edge almost ready to put their trust in Christ but they drift away and they may never get back to that point again and the writer of Hebrews is saying if you don't trust in Christ how are you going to escape if God dealt with the nation of Israel for their sins time and time again, and there was retribution, which we just looked at, how are you going to escape such a great salvation? Soteria, which is the word, soteria, salvation, rescue from danger. The good news is, all of you that have trusted in Christ, you've been rescued from danger. You are safe, you are secure, and you can trust in that. Philip Hacking, in his commentary, wrote this. If Jesus is the Son of God and God's last word in these last days, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, how unthinkable it is to ignore his message and how dangerous to think of turning back from him. Lest we drift away, verse 2. If you haven't trusted in Christ, you should be concerned. If you have trusted in Christ, go on to perfection. Aim high. Aim to live for him. Soteria. Rescued from danger. And he's telling the Jewish audience... If you don't trust in Christ and you drift, 
how in the world are you going to escape God on the day of judgment? And again, in my years when I've shared the gospel and somebody says, I'll think about it, usually what that means is no. And how horrible, how horrible it would be to miss the kingdom of God by this much. You know about Jesus, but you didn't trust in Jesus. What is that, about a foot? To miss the kingdom of God, be so close, and then turn and leave it. And the author here says, how are you going to escape? This is the funny thing about God. People think that they can hide from God, but they can't. God knows. He knows the heart. Lastly, pay attention to the gospel message and confirmation. It was declared first by the Lord. Now, the author is obviously saved. He's the one writing this. Verse 3b, it was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. When you think about Jesus, he was here. Scripture says in every way he grew up just like us. He had to be in certain sense because Jesus was real. And so Jesus grew up like any other boy, but then he also, some commentators, they're not what I'm talking about, but Jesus always knew his identity. He was fully God, fully man in human form. There was never a time Jesus went, oh, wait a minute, I don't know who I am. Let me find myself. Jesus knew who he was. And as Jesus went around preaching the kingdom of God, people heard that message. I, I just did a scan of the, of the four Gospels. Do you know how many miracles Jesus did? There were a lot of them. There were so many different ways that Jesus confirmed the message in the kingdom of God, and Jesus' message was this. Anyone... Anyone can come to the cross and be saved. That was Jesus' message. It was open to anybody. And that's what, that's what got Jesus in trouble with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious elite of the day. Why is he eating with sinners? You don't do that. Jesus says, my kingdom is like this. In fact, if you prevent a little child from coming to me, you got big problems, paraphrase. Jesus always, he would go eat with tax collectors. They were despised. So you can imagine the religious elite going, whoa, you don't do that. But Jesus says, come. My kingdom is open to anyone who will trust in me. 
It knows no religious bounds. It knows no ethnic relation. It, It knows no corporate status. It doesn't matter whether you're black, white, Asian, whatever. It does not matter because the kingdom of God is open to all. And that's what short-circuited the Pharisees and the scribes. Not all of them. Some of them knew full well. One of my favorite characters in the New Testament is Nicodemus. And because I think he was searching. Teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Went to Jesus at night so nobody would see him, but still. So when you look at Jesus, the message was confirmed. Who is this that even the waves and the seas obey? Who is this that he can tell the wind to stop? Who is this that can cause the blind to see and the lame to walk? Who is this that can raise people from the dead? Who is this? Well, I tell you who it is. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He came. And that was confirmed by those who heard. Not only that, verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs. This is Jesus. He's preaching the kingdom of God. He's preaching the message of salvation. People are listening and responding. You know what I love about Jesus? He always cared about the downtrodden and the broken. And the ones that high society would not touch. Jesus was for the every man. You think about it. If you're rich, you're going to trust in Christ. You've got everything, right? Not really. <laughs> while God also bore witness, and not only Jesus and the message that was heard, while God also bore witness by signs, wonders, and miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. I want you to look at something here for a second. I actually put this in my other Bible upstairs and then forgot to translate it to my preaching Bible. I have three or four Bibles, study Bible and then preaching Bible, and I forgot to circle it. Look at verse 3. You'll notice it was first declared by the Lord. Watch this. Verse 4, while God, so you have Jesus, you have the Lord, and look at what you got in verse 4, the Holy Spirit. Guess who's involved in the, in the work of salvation? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three in this verse attesting to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Ray Stedman Don't worry, we're getting ready to land the plane. I've yelled long enough. The authority from which the gospel flows included all three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son makes the full announcement of it and completes the basis for it through pain and blood. The Father works with him to confirm his word with signs and wonders, and the Spirit continues confirmation by distribution of spiritual gifts. So within this framework, 
you see the activity of the Godhead in salvation. Final thoughts. I got four of them. It'll only take 30 minutes. Don't worry. Number one, there are people in danger and they don't even know it. Years ago, I thought I would make it through the sermon without a military reference, but actually that's not even in my notes, just something came to my mind. You remember the hour of power with Robert Schuler? Schuler, yeah. When I was a young private, one Sunday morning I got up for unknown reasons, I turned the television on and it was AFN, Armed Forces Network, and they were sharing the hour of power and Robert Schuller was talking. I had no idea what he was saying. My, my friend Rick Fronda came back from breakfast. And of course, in those days I was lost and I was out partying with my friends and Rick Fronda walked back in and he saw me watching the hour of power and he goes, he said, Mike, are you okay? <laughs> I said, Rick, I don't know why I'm watching this. And then, of course, Shirley came in. What's up, Mike? And I'm watching the Hour of Power. I had no idea. I can't remember what I saw that day, but I do remember him talking about Jesus Christ. And I see in my own life, the snippets of how God gave me the opportunity to trust in Christ. He's giving you the opportunity to trust in Christ. And brothers and sisters, there's people that are clueless. There's people, they're even close. They're like right there. The only thing that's hanging on to them is the world. And they just... They're so close and stepping in. Let me give you a New Testament example. Acts 26, 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time you would have persuaded me to be a Christian. In a short time. And Paul says this, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I, except for my chains. In other words, Agrippa says, I'm right there, but I'm not doing it. And there be people in your life, and you know what? I think the best thing to do, this is pastoral theology, the best thing to do for those people that are right on the edge is pray, 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 pray. Look, what should our response be? Our response should be to respond in love so that they might come to know Jesus Christ. We come to worship on Sunday. Sunday is the locker room where we get prepared to go out into the world and share the good news and love people and care for them. 
knowing full well there's a world outside these church doors in Tolono, Philo, Sidoris, Savoy, Champaign that don't know Christ. And when we're out there on the highways and byways of life, we show love and we try to liberate them from darkness. Never by ourselves, of course, but through the Holy Spirit. The gospel is truth. It was authorized by the Father. It was lived out by the Son, and it was confirmed by the Holy Spirit. Let me close by saying this. If you have not trusted in Christ, today would be the greatest day in the world to do that. You come forward at the end of this service and trust in Christ. Maybe you want to recommit today. Maybe you want to join the church. I don't know whatever decision need to be made that you would make them not because of me or because of the deacons or because of the church, but you make them because of God.